0: You're listening to Simply Stogies, a podcast dedicated to the cigar enthusiast. Light up a stogie, sit back, relax, while James brings you along on his cigar journey. Simply Stogies will review cigars, discuss topics that cigar aficionados find important, sit down with guests from across the industry, and we'll probably learn a few things along the way. Now, here's your host of Simply Stogies, James. Welcome to Simply stogies, I am your host,
1: James. Uh, welcome back uh, to this uh, Cuban sub-series. We've been doing it all year. We'll continue to do it for the rest of the year. And I am joined this week, as I am for every Cuban uh, episode, with Nick Siris, uh LH cigars and uh, Cuban expert. Uh, Nick, welcome back to the program. Thank
2: you very much, James. Always a pleasure to be here with you and uh, love talking about cigars and Hanging out with the folks.
1: Yeah, How have you been? I feel like it's (laughs) been a while since we've actually.
2: Uh, Yeah, because we usually record a lot earlier. I think this is like, you know, (laughs) but uh, yeah, it's been a busy time. You know, it's been a good time, I guess. You know, now we're into the summer months and I'm enjoying being outside and having my cigars outside on my little deck and my espresso in the morning with a cigar. So uh, life is good. Now, for me living in New Jersey, where it's normally very cold,
1: Jersey's you know, great. Jersey. Yes. Uh, how do you like Jersey, Nick? Well, okay.
2: <laughs> um, I literally was raised, wasn't born here. I was born in Greece, came over at the wee age of about two and um, lived here until I couldn't wait to leave. Literally. <laughs> Right. Um, Not that I hated it. It was a bad um, childhood or place to grow up. I had great friends um, and I guess I was very Jersey impacted and, you know, uh, formulated uh, here in Jersey. But the one thing I could never get used to and it's just not part of me is the cold weather. So I remember the first time I set foot in Florida in the middle of a winter here in Jersey, <laughs> and I got off the plane. And the great thing about it was it was the Palm Beach Airport. And back then, when I was going to college um, during spring break, my first time out, you literally walked off the plane onto the tarmac, not you know the bridge. So I had the door open. I walk outside and I go, "What?" The? It was like being it was such a magical moment for me because I left Jersey going, God, it's cold. This, this is so cold. Like <laughs> I just hated ah, the cold. Yeah. And when I got off that plane, I was like, Oh my God, why does anybody live in cold weather when you can live yeah. here? And it was my um, goal, I guess you could say, and dream to live in warm weather year round. So I did that, you know, just so people understand, I lived in Florida for 20 plus years. I love uh, from 1997 all the way till about officially three or four years ago and um, would have continued to be there. And if it weren't for other circumstances, I'm still in Jersey because of the pandemic and everything else. And now, you know, it's just like, you know, the pricing and I made the biggest mistake. Hey, pandemic's
1: almost over. And, you yeah, know, pen-
2: No, the pandemic, I could only blame it why it kept me here. Now, what's keeping me here is I'm waiting to see an adjustment, hopefully, in pricing and uh, homes. Mm, Because unfortunately, I did sell my home in Florida prior to the pandemic. And, um, you know, the person that bought it for me doubled their money in about 18 months. I wasn't that lucky one, but that's generally my luck when it comes to uh, real estate. Yeah,
1: well, but anyway, here's the vibe. Yeah, I'm in Jersey. Jersey. Yeah, Yeah, you like it.
2: I I enjoy Jersey. I enjoy it in the summer. I enjoy it in the warm months. (laughs) Um, There's a lot of things I don't like about Jersey. I don't like the roads. Um, They're like, I feel now when I drive through Morristown, which is, you know, where I actually grew up um, from where I live now into Morristown, I feel like I'm four wheeling every day because the roads are completely torn up uh, more than usual. Uh, potholes, you know, are there all the time because of the uh, winter months and, and things are just, uh, you know, crazy, but I, I don't know, I, I, I wouldn't mind if the weather was okay. I could live in Jersey. I know the taxes are higher here, but you know, not to make light, I'm sure there's a lot of people that love Jersey and live here and never want to leave. And you know what? It was kind of a big deal when I moved out 20 plus years ago, well, actually now it's been longer, 97, um, because, the reality is most people that are born in Jersey or grow up in Jersey, never leave Jersey. And there is something to that because it's difficult for somebody that grew up in Jersey to live anywhere else. It's a different pace of life up here. I'm saying Jersey, New York, you know, Northeast lifestyle. Sure, But, um, you know, because I looked for years because it was always my dream when I could to get out and move to a warmer climate but I checked and I looked at other areas and I'm like, no, this isn't going to work. The first place I felt at home and they don't call it, you know, New Jersey South for a reason is, you know, Southern Florida. I ended up moving to Boca Raton where my company is still based out of. And it was um, just like being in New Jersey, New York, but with the warm weather, Uh, you know, that's the good and the bad. Um, So, you know, I did enjoy, I lived there for over 20 years and I don't know if I'll move back to Boca,
1: even though I do like South Florida, but I am open to some warmer part of the world. For sure. some, yeah, right. Somewhere warmer. That's I keep saying uh, the same thing. We've got a lot to talk about. We've got Cuban news coming up. We're going to talk about the price increases uh, this week and and, and inflation, because we already kind of touched on that with the housing market mm-hmm. and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, and then we're going to get into uh, the uh, modern uh, Cuban brands and the impact uh, of the uh, U.S. embargo uh, on Cuban cigars, but before we do that, a couple of quick things: the PCA trade show is coming up. Depending on when you're listening to this, but when, when we when, when we're recording this, we're less than uh, I think we're a week away uh, from a uh, little more than a week away, eight days from when the uh, PCA trade show is going to start. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Simply Stogies Podcast. Uh, we'll be doing a lot of uh, lives from uh, from the trade show floor. Lots of good stuff coming up. Make sure you go to uh, simplystogies.com for the greatest and latest content there, uh, including today there's a uh, a review that I put up on the 15 Minutes of Fame from Lost and Found, so check that out, as well as I've reviewed uh, several of the LH cigars from Nick, uh, and they all got very high scores, because they're all very, very, very good. So go check those out at simplystogies.com, and as always... Use coupon code simply stogies. When you go to Oxford dot com, you'll get 15 percent off your entire purchase. That's right. Your entire purchase doesn't matter what's in your cart. Fifteen percent off when you use coupon code simply stogies at Oxford dot com. That's it. Shilling is over. I'm done. I'm no more shilling. I'm done with the shilling. I understand you have some Cuban news for us.
2: Yeah, I'm always uh, James as uh, a Cuban Guy, in the sense that I uh, follow everything about Cuba, primarily the cigars, of course, but uh, I feel this connection with Cuba uh, since the first time I set foot on the island. Uh, even though I'm not Cuban um, in descent, you know, ancestral wise, I do feel somewhat of a kin, kin, kindred to the people and the island there. So I always keep in touch with uh, what's going on in Cuba. And what I've noticed, um, you know, we did that. Cuba trip episode a couple of uh, months back when I returned after my long hiatus, you know, I used to go for people that don't know. I was, you know, I traveled to Cuba probably monthly for over a decade. Um, And uh, after being uh, away from there for two years, thanks to the pandemic, I was hesitant, but also eager to go back Hesitant because I knew what was going on, or i you know, from reports that I get regularly, to see it firsthand. And like we mentioned, uh, the one word for the, my visit there and the time we use the word "shit show" and it was <laughs> yeah. for, for a multiple of reasons. But I will say that uh, the good news is not that things are turning around quickly, but that was. Probably the bottom of the barrel. I think uh, things, I could feel it when I was there that things were going to start taking that turn uh, uphill. And uh, it's going to be a long and hard uphill, but it is um, starting to recover in some ways. However, you would not think that if you look at certain things in the papers. uh, The one thing that I've noticed there's a lot more reports of the Coast Guard picking up a lot more people. Trying to leave, um, you know, on these makeshift rafts and boats. Um, just recently, another 77 people uh, were reappropriated back to Cuba. So you see that, um, people are still trying to uh, leave in droves, and it's been the biggest, uh, exodus out of Cuba since, um, you know, since forever. I mean, the, since US the 90s, customer-
1: right? Like, we're talking, oh, well,
2: yeah. Um, the last big thing, you know, was um, the, you know, the Marielle exodus of the eighties, actually, when they had the big, uh, the 125,000 yes. Cubans were were brought in. Now this exceeds it, you know, because um, now there's been over 140,000 documented cases where Cuban migrants uh, have been between October of last year and the end of May. So, you're talking, um, you know, a big number of people coming and a lot of them are coming, you know, through Mexico via Nicaragua um, and also uh, any way they can. You know, they're coming any way they can. Uh, a lot of them are going through other countries or or um, through the boats, you know, the the makeshift boats trying to get here. The reality is everybody. That has any money or can get their hands on money. They've just had it and they've left because uh, the country is in dire need of cash. There is um, no money. And that is because, you know, the pandemic hit them hard. Um, the Trump um, changes in policy hit them hard economically with no remittances being able to be brought. And that was the way most. Uh, Cubans lived there you know from their family and friends sending back money uh, mm-hmm. regularly and, and I'll talk about that um, that the change finally was uh, instituted by by Biden, um, which took into effect I think it was June 9th. but anyway all these people are still trying to leave. Um, I so many so many friends that I made over the last decade plus, are now living all over the United States. I'm getting, you know, Facebook messages and, uh, you know, WhatsApp messages. Hey, I'm in the States. And it's like, it's great, but I love it, you know, for them. But it's also like, you know, I love going to Cuba to visit them. So now they're all scattered around the United States. And, um, you know, I I wish the best for them. And what, what the good news is I do believe that they will make lives for themselves here and make money and they will go back and... You know, you know, I believe the new Cubans, they want to go back. You see, they want to make money here. They want to make lives here, but they want to go back to Cuba because, you know, other than, you know, politically and economically, Cuba is a wonderful island, Um, you know, but those two factors make it not so wonderful. (laughs) Right. But uh, I understand, you know, somebody of Cuban descent that, you know. Now they can make money. And for the last few years, that's what has been happening, where Cubans have made money and they go back and they invest it back into their house or into their other family members in the forms of businesses there that are catering to tourists because those are the people that have the money. And some of the you know, wealthy Cubans doesn't usually go together, If meaning in Cuba Cubans, but there are actually, um, there were. A lot of middle class Cubans that were doing okay there. But the reality is most of those people are now in the United States. So the policies um, that are in place now for Cubans to still enter the United States and um, seek a path to citizenship or, you know, legal um, residency here is... Uh, helping the Cubans in a lot of ways, so we'll see what happens uh, that way.
1: But do you um, think do you think that these these uh, this exodus is going to stop? It, because things are like you said, they're they're starting to take a turn and they're starting to go uphill. Do you think these we're going to stop seeing these? You know, it, it's going to slow
2: down. No, no, it's going to slow down, and already the numbers have shown that it's starting to slow down. You know, uh, the problem is. The money now is starting to get back into Cuba in the form of certain uh, countries are starting now being the summer months, people on vacation and what have you that are, uh, you know, being the first ones so to speak, to jump back in the water and go back to Cuba and visit the island there. Um, So you're seeing some limited tourism coming back to Cuba. Um, The good news is that, you know, part of the uh, Treasury Department's, you know, the, the Office of Foreign Asset Control you know, during their amendment uh, that came out on uh, June 9th, uh, one of the things were that you could send back money again. So basically they, not only could you send back, but they, they actually removed the limit on family remittances of $1,000 per quarter, because there used to be That was always in place even during the trump times um and then trump removed it so now biden has um removed the limits and so now you can see more free-flowing money from the u.s going to the people of cuba to the family members uh primarily through western unions because there is no banking system that works again we don't have credit cards that work there um even though for a while there was a move. I did enjoy the privilege of having one of the you know few banks in the U.S. that had credit cards that did work in Cuba, kind of, I mean, somewhat <laughs> better than nothing. And right. then all of a sudden that went away, and then everything else went away. So that was a good thing. But you know, basically to transition to talk about what did the Biden administration do, um, you know, that changed some of these rules that um, Trump actually. Um, put into place uh, after Obama actually started to make things better for Cuba-U.S. relations. So Trump kind of stiffened them back uh, for political reasons um, to keep the Cuban-American vote that's primarily based out of Miami. And even though they've done, uh, you know, polls right now, um, they're, you know, right now it's like a 50-50 where before it was, you know, predominantly anti-Cuba because it was the old folks that, uh, when I say older, older people (laughs) that uh, were directly (laughs) affected by Castro's uh, policies. I mean, everybody's been affected, but they were the first and the ones that took the brunt of it, losing their homes, their bank accounts being emptied uh, and worse. Um, So most of them came to the U S and stayed here and uh, they've been hoping to uh, remove the Castro I mean, that was the idea of the embargo, right? To put the squeeze on it. And my whole thing is, look, it didn't work over 60 years. of it didn't work, something else has to be done. Um, but, you know, a lot of the the uh, older class of Cubans that have lived in the United States still believe that the embargo um, is working and they get very upset if anybody goes to Cuba, especially Americans. Um, and there is luck. There's a lot about that. And again, I don't want to get too politically about it, but I am just stating a fact that now because of all the new the new uh, younger Cubans that are coming over, they're less um, anti Cuba going back to Cuba, which is evident because they're making money here and going back and putting the money back into Cuba, which is not necessarily good for the U.S. economy, but they're putting money back into Cuba to help their own economy, but that's what's happening with, you know, all the, um, you know, the Mexicans that are living here now. They take their money, and most of these, uh, you know, it happens in every country. Like I'm, I'm Greek, and in in Greece, they talk about how the Albanians that are in uh, in in Greece that are working and they take their money and they go back to Albania. So that is a problem when the money doesn't go back into the country where. Um, the money was earned. So, you know, you're not getting into the economy and that's not a good thing, but for Cuba, it's a good thing. But if, like I said, they've done polls and, um, it's not exactly 50, 50, but it's like 60, 40 the trend is switching. It's lessening. And so it will be less of an impact to the, um, to the political American political system, the Cuban vote, um, where before they knew they had to be strictly anti Cuba, policies to get that vote and i think right now it's a smaller percentage well i mean it's good
1: yeah go let me let me ask you this nick because like you said the the, the embargo has been in place for 60 years at this point what good has it done i mean let's let, let's start there because we're going to talk today about the impact of the embargo what good did it do at the beginning was there any good that it did ever or is it was it just a Show of political will, like we're, you know, this is how we're going to show our, our disdain for what you've done uh, for the side that you've decided to, to, to support. I mean, I, I guess I get that. I mean, we're, we're putting sanctions on Russia right now. It's kind of like an embargo, but is that really yeah, doing it's anything? Just
2: a, that's a step. Yeah. Uh, that's a step below an embargo. But yeah. Um, now the question that you're asking me. Um, you know, I've been asked and I've had heated conversations with, um, you know, people of Cuba that were more directly affected than I than I have been obviously. And, and I don't make light of that. The people that were more directly affected their families, let's say they were, you know, maybe they even they lost, um, you know, family members, uh, you know, brutally, um, beaten or, or in, you know, I, I can't imagine some of the the, you know, the crimes against humanity that have occurred. So I don't want to make light of any of the Cuban Americans that are living here today and how they feel. Um, But I'm just going to take my position um, of what I've seen uh, being there. And also from the fact that what it seems like to me is exactly what you stated for the most part, you know, the Cuban embargo, I understand why it was put in place, but the effect even or the intent even from day 1 it was never supposed to be this half a century plus embargo it was supposed to be something temporary temporarily put in place to affect the uh, the government there and to basically crush it um and so they could come back in the person i heard the architect of the embargo and the person that really wrote this policy was the same person that had something to do with the israeli um Process of uh, Israel becoming a state and uh, their own country. So the same person that worked on that was working on the uh, the Cuba the the Cuba thing. So they thought, hey man, this is going to be a few years. I mean, it even let's talk about in relation to cigars. All the the uh, Americans that were selling Cuban tobacco here, they didn't even slow down. If they knew like, hey, listen, all this tobacco you have in your in your warehouses and and that you're storing, you're going to need for the next 50, 60 years because you're not going to get any more, they would have held on to it for a lot longer or, you know, like a fine wine or, you know, or something like that. But now they thought, you know what, the embargo is going to be maybe one, two years. So they, for a number of years, Uh, It was like there was no embargo, at least when it came to cigars in America, because they, you know, were free flowingly selling all the Cuban tobacco that they had in their warehouses and storage. So that goes to show you that nobody really thought it was going to uh, stay in place. Now,
1: did Cuba think the same thing? Because you're talking about the U.S. now you're talking about the the Cuban stores here in the U.S. that they didn't think it was going to last that long. Did the Cubans think the same thing?
2: I don't know. You know, it's a good question. I would think that they hope not. Right. uh, Because it did affect them. Clearly, it still affects them. Um, It's affected them in a lot of ways, but not enough. My whole point, yes, has it been effective in some ways, but obviously not enough to
1: accomplish what it was set in place in the first place. No, it was was, set to affect change, to affect change in the regime, to, to topple the government. Right. And, and in and, my opinion, it kind of helped the do the exact opposite in some
2: ways because it isolated them. It, it basically empowered that uh, regime and government because they didn't have the influence and they were able to stay in power. Now, what did Castro do? And it, and it was a smart move on his part. Anybody would say that is he's like, oh, my God, I got to go against, you know, the United States. So what did he do when, when, when a bully or a big guy is picking on a little guy, what do you got to do? You got to get the next guy to help you. So who was the next person, the next, you know, uh, country, Russia. So they, you know, Castro, you know, I don't think it was the,
1: it was his, it was his only move. If you really want to
2: talk about it, like he wanted to make
1: sure. Yeah. He, I don't think he wanted to get in bed with the Russians any more than he wanted to get in bed with the United States. And. But the enemy of my enemy is my friend.
2: That's right. And so Russia basically kind of watched his back and the country's back and kind of propped them through, you know, the special period and the money was coming from them. So all, you know, Russia helped them as much as they could because they saw Cuba as such a huge ally against the U.S. And again, being, you know, 90 miles off the shores, you know, that didn't that didn't help uh, that, that that helped you. That helped. uh Cuba's position, you know, because Russia wanted to be right on our on our doorstep. And, you know, the U.S. couldn't allow for that. And that's, you know, when the whole, uh, you know, uh, Cuban uh, missile crisis happened. And and Bay of Pigs and and the the missile crisis. All all of we tried. And, um, you know, there have been and, and since the embargo was put in place, you know, there's been a bunch of stuff. You know, the restriction of U.S. citizens traveling to Cuba actually lapsed. In 1977. But then, since then, the regulation was renewable every six months. But then Jimmy Carter decided not to renew it. And um, then, President Reagan, when he was put in place, he reinstated the trading, uh, the trade embargo in 1982. Um, and then, so it was kind of like it was kind of not there for a second, um, and it depending on which political party was in place. But then, something happened in 1992. Uh, The embargoes were reinforced, you know, by what they called the Cuban Democracy Act. Um, Basically, it's known today as the Helms-Burton Act, which penalizes foreign companies to do business in Cuba, by preventing them from doing any business uh, and all the other restrictions that accompany that. Um, You know, Obama, I believe, tried to lift that embargo. Congress wasn't going to allow it because the only way the embargo could have been lifted is by an act of Congress. Right. So that's uh, that's where we're at right now. I mean, there's been some thaw, obviously. You know, it started off in uh, I remember because I was already going to Cuba by that point, April thirteenth, two thousand nine. Um, he uh, Barack Obama eased the travel ban a bit, allowing. Cuban Americans to travel freely. Now you'd think what Cuban Americans weren't allowed to visit their families before that. Nah. sometimes it was, it was, uh, there was a complete zero. And other times they were allowed with certain restrictions, but at least that was put in place. And then in 2011, he eased it further by allowing students and um, religious missionaries and all these other classes of general uh, that fell under the general License, um, because before that you had specific licenses you had to obtain to go to Cuba, and then 2011, certain more re, uh, restrictions were eased. But really, um, you know, things started to get better with uh, 2014. The Obama administration announced its intention to actually reestablish relations in Cuba, and that was a big thing. Uh, And then 2015, they lightened the restrictions on all U.S. citizen travel. So they made it much, much easier. You could fall under one of the 12 cat at the time. I think it was more than 12 cat. I think it was 14 categories. And it was basically, look, they didn't say you could go there and be a tourist, but you could go there. And the idea was that, you know, if Americans travel to Cuba and interact with the Cubans that are there the Cubans there would get to understand and know what Americans were like and what democracy and, and it would actually make an effect. And I do believe that that would have worked and continued to work because a lot of people think Cubans hate Americans and they don't. Um, they really do enjoy, we're talking to people now. They love meeting Americans. Uh, they love American money. That's, that's obvious because <laughs> right. because they need it. And um, you know, um, it was a good thing and the relations were good. Um, it's a very safe. People always ask me, Oh, how dangerous is it going to Cuba? And I say, you know what? It is one of the most safest places to visit, uh, that I've ever been to. I mean, I felt more safe there than I felt in any major city, uh, that I can recall because you know what the government they they are very strict about stuff. And, uh, you know, that's evident in some of their, uh, you know the penalties that they put on people i mean there's penalties it's kind of a joke but it's true it's it's actually more years in jail for killing a a cow than killing a person because cows are so sacred there in the not sacred religiously sacred but sacred that they don't have enough of them so even if you own a cow you can't kill it because it's against the law. So, and if you do kill them more, you're going to go to jail and go for a while. So the other big thing, their main things, if you commit a crime against a tourist, oh boy, you are in big, big trouble because the one thing that they wanted to protect is the tourist and make right. everyone feel safe there. And you know what? I think they accomplished it. They did with me. I mean, I literally feel that I could have walked, you know, at 3 a.m. and pitch dark you know, back streets in the worst parts of Cuba. And I would not really fear for my life. Now, could I get rolled if I, if I was wearing a, a watch or my get my uh, uh, f- iPhone stolen? Um, not aggressively, you know, maybe in like, you know, the worst neighborhood maybe, but normally where you go, no, there's really not that much, you know, assault. Now, if I was drunk and I was sitting at a table or at a bar and I left my phone, oh, right. is it going to get stolen? Yeah, probably. Yeah. But that'll be, that'll happen anywhere. But people there were very cautious because they knew what would happen and they went against them hard. You know, the, the police there, you did not mess with a tourist. And I believe that policy is in place and it's um, you know, how they make their money other yeah. than the remittances back from the uh, family and friends from Cuba the big way they make money is through tourism. So, you know, that's why they
1: do me Let me bring this back to cigars for just a second because I want to talk about the impact of the embargo on on cigars. And Mm -hmm. so pre-embargo, I mean, there's the famous story of uh, Kennedy telling his secretary, you know, get me 1,500 of these cigars because he knew the embargo was coming.
2: The Air Salinger, yes. Yeah.
1: So... Pre-embargo, Cuban cigars were cigars. That was it, right? There were maybe a bit. That was
2: pretty much the only cigars. Yeah.
1: yeah. There may have been a couple of outliers from other countries where they rolled cigars, but not. It was all Cuban. So the Cuban embargo comes. And now all of a sudden, oh, shit. Where are we going to get our cigars? And so for those who didn't know it was coming and couldn't stock up, suddenly you are left going, um, where are these going to come from? And obviously nature abhors a vacuum. So new cigar companies started to spring up. So for me, Nick, the big impact of the embargo outside of the effects that it has on the Cuban people. And then, uh, you know, it's obviously in my opinion, I think it's pretty useless at this point. And honestly, why do we even care right now we have so many other issues as a country why are we why are we bothering with this and i know that might upset some uh, of the old school cuban folks and i and i understand that and i under, and i understand both sides of the coin but just looking at it objectively from a political side i don't why are we involved why why are, just,
2: why are we involved as a
1: country yeah just i i feel like it's it's just time to to, to let it go um and and focus more on 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 things internally than than externally. But the, for me, the big impact is new world cigars were born, and they yes. they exploded because of this, right? Yes. If there wasn't an embargo,
2: who knows what cigars today would be like? I would think that the majority of tobacco used would be would be still Cuban and less um interest in exploration would have happened worldwide to all these other countries you know right now there's over 80 countries that produce tobacco for premium cigars um back then there was you know much much less you know 99% was all cuba and obviously there is not enough cuban tobacco to supply the world of premium cigars and that also will give us a nice segue at some point to talk about Why the Cuban government and why, and I'll give you my opinion on why the prices of Cuban cigars have uh, gone up so dramatically. Not like this. I mean, for the last, as long as I can remember, prices always went up on Cuban cigars, but we're talking incrementally, you know, a few percent, five percent, you know, was about the average yearly. Now, you know, there's 50 to 150 percent on certain brands and certain cigars. And we can talk about that. But if we're talking about the embargo and the effect on Cuban cigars, yeah, there was a positive effect, I guess, in some ways, believe it or not, because the positive effect, at least for Americans and worldwide, uh, it it does affect worldwide. Once you get that element of the forbidden fruit, all of a sudden people look, Americans in general, just look at the way we clamor to like brands and, and, and things we can't buy and limited edition, those things are, you know, just not, not only American, but belief Americans seem to clamor to that the most. So when you make something less available and something you can't have, what does that mean? You want it more. And it drives me crazy. And that, and that same thing works on not only uh, other cigars and other brands, but also, you know, it's throughout every industry out there, but, It's sad that people, especially on something that's a consumable product, and I say cigars are consumable in the the way we smoke them, and we get pleasure from the aromas and the taste that we get from smoking these cigars. So it's consumed, you know, Um, and it should be something that you should be able to make your own opinion. I understand people that, let's say, are getting into the cigar business, into the cigar world as a smoker. They're going to use whatever tools they can find, and today, you know, um, cigar aficionado seems to be a big tool out there for newbies. Um, you know, I, in my opinion, not the best way, but it's no. at least some way to get.
1: I to, suppose. Uh,
2: you know, I it's got, like you're not
1: going to get well, you're not going to get a lot of love for uh, cigar aficionado from me. You're just, I I feel like they are um, terrible objectively terrible they're they're not a cigar magazine they are a lifestyle magazine that's my personal opinion take it or leave it i don't care that's just that's well, that's my
2: thing here's my thing do i think their reviews are fair do i think their reviews i don't think reviews in general um should have as much impact on a person's you know no. reason to want to smoke a cigar because Everybody's palate is different. And uh, you as a reviewer may like something and somebody else would say, oh, my God, this is awful. Um, So how can you be, you know, and Cigar Aficionado. But I know a lot of people that do just that. They'll buy this magazine and they'll use it as a Bible. And, oh, I want this cigar because it was the top rated cigar. Does that mean it's I'm always shaking my head today on some of these top, top ranked cigars, number one, two, two cigar. And I'm like, really? Number one? And I'm like, you know, not to disparage any brand in particular, um, but, you know, come on, guys. I mean, it, it can be used as a rule of thumb, but what I try to tell people to do is use their own taste buds. And a lot of times people, do, here's the bottom line problem. People do not have enough confidence in their own Palette in their own taste buds in their own. Hey, I don't know enough about cigars, so I'm just going to listen to the experts. Yeah. That may work in other things where it's, it's quantifiable about why this is better than that. But when it comes down to individual taste buds and individual, you know, aromas and, and no, 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 yeah. you have to use your own personal um, opinions
1: on that. And Absolutely. What, I, I don't know of anybody, but one person that would take away Tasting notes of mayonnaise, Thousand Island dressing, and copy paper, um, and nobody else yeah. would. But one, I, there's one gentleman that w- that would, and it rhymes um, with Farley. Uh, but I mean mm. that it's all subjective. No one else is going to get those tasting notes, but he did. So good on him. That doesn't mean that you're going to get those tasting notes. I look. I always tell people my my palate is shit. Don't take my word. I'm telling you what I tasted. I'm telling you my experience. Well, smoke it for yourself and see if it's similar. See if you get anything close to that. You might. You might not, and that's okay, right? Well, so I, I, I hate it when people are, think they're the end all be all of. Well, of, you know, we t- we're right now. I, I don't want to, even though
2: you know you you had some very strong words um, <laughs> or comments about cigar aficionado, and I think a lot of people um, in the industry feel that way. Um, for me. Even though it's not my favorite magazine anymore, it'll always have a soft spot in my personal heart because, let's be real, that's probably why I got into cigar smoking. I mean, I loved cigar. I was so heavily. I shouldn't say, uh, I, I should say so heavily because when I first smoked a cigar, I wanted to learn everything there was about that cigar. So, what I did is I went to a bookstore and I bought every book I could about cigars. That's just my personality. So I became a hardcore, wanted to learn everything and, you know, uh, but really what got me in that in love uh, stage of cigars, where it became, you know, a love affair was the first issue of Cigar Aficionado that I read cover to cover. And I was, I was just like, wow, you know, it was all about the lifestyle and it got me going. It's like, wow. And, you know, I was younger and I said, you know what? These are people, and I was a a budding and uh, wanted to be a very successful entrepreneur in life. And, you know, and I wanted the finer things, you know, my my mind and, and ideals and opinions and things have changed through the years. But, you know, back then I was very impressionable and I wanted, and I can understand for a lot of people, a cigar represents status in the sense that it's like you've made it kind of thing. But the reality is what I think it is with the magazine and everything else is, look, maybe you don't live in a $20 million mansion. Maybe you don't drive a million-dollar Bugatti or even you know a half a million-dollar Ferrari um, or more, um, but you know All what? Right. You can smoke the same cigar. You can afford anybody. I mean, it might, listen, is $100 a lot of money for some people? Absolutely. But can they still buy a $100 cigar if they needed to? Not that anyone should ever need uh, to buy. Who would cigars. need to I, do that? But yeah, you
1: know, yeah, absolutely. I know what you're saying. You know,
2: because but but the point <laughs> is, even the most expensive cigar out there, pretty much anybody on this earth. Uh, okay, let's say in some countries they have to work for a long time to to get that. Whatever the case, but the point is, anybody or it's theoretically attainable. anybody, it's attainable. Yeah, is a is a Ferrari or or a multi million dollar mansion obtainable for some? Yeah. No, um, but they can get that cigar. So it's, it's an escape. It's well, it's something to make you want to achieve that. So for me, it said, you know what, I, I want the finer things in life. And I, and this is going to put me in that mindset. And you know what it did. I have to admit it did smoking a cigar initially before I got into it, I was like, okay, this is good. But then I realized I started smoking for why, what was in the, the, the material of what I was smoking, which is the magical, you know, tobacco leaf. Once I realized, oh my God, I love what these aromas and these tastes and what it does to me helping me relax. That was my major thing in the beginning. Cause I was always, you know, high, strong and just never seemed to be able to relax. For me, a cigar meant I could sit back and relax and de-stress. When I yeah. started smoking, I smoked once a week. Then it went to a couple times a week, and you know now it's a couple times a minute.
1: Uh, but right, you know, yeah. it's a <laughs> well, little let me, extreme. Let me you know. use this as a segue. Then, uh, you know, because we're talking about you know cigars are attainable, and they're they're well, they may not be affordable. You can certainly you know choose to smoke whatever, but Habanos SA has said no. I think we want to make Cohibas and Trinidad super unattainable even as inflation, uh, is rising worldwide, gas prices are soaring. Housing markets are still, they're, they're starting to come under control and the the bubble will probably burst soon. Um, but you know, the housing is still a super expensive two to three times more than what it was, uh, even a year ago. So what's going on with that? Like, that's a huge, like you were saying earlier, you know, it was, it, they, they would kind of raise prices every year and everybody kind of does that. Um, not every year, but now they've taken their pricing and they have literally jacked it up to where they are pricing people out of Cuban cigars.
2: Well, um, I'll give you the official position of Habanos and why this has happened. And then I'm going to give you my opinion, which I believe is a lot closer to the truth. Um, as you mentioned, you know, pretty much all of its brands saw an increase as they always did every year in the global market. But this year, Cohiba and Trinidad specifically uh, will have the hugest jump as they'll now be priced in accordance to what they call the Hong Kong market, which for people that don't know is by far the most expensive market in the world. Now, to give you an idea, a typical Cohiba you know, not a behike or something, just a regular behike, a uh, regular cohiba. The average cost of a of a uh, cohiba is going to be about a hundred bucks. Behikes, if you can get them, you know, they're no longer going to be priced, you know, a couple hundred bucks. It's going to be in the thousands and they are right now. Now, why? Habano sites because there was a big imbalance between, and there always has been between the supply and demand. And that's their. What they state as their main reason for the price uh, hikes, this unstoppable, insatiable demand for Cohiba that seems to be out there. Um, But here's what they really, one of the things that they've always wanted to do, and they've been doing it for the number of years, is they really want to make Cohiba the internationally recognized, it already is, but they want to make it, what's the best way to? Bougie.
1: Well, they want to make it the burka bag of
2: yeah. cigars.
1: They I want mean, to make it bougie. They're like, no, they're going to be we're going to be like yeah. the uh, Tiffany. Like a burka bag.
2: For people that don't yeah. know, you know, I, I happen to know only because I watched some shows and my wife told me about it. You know, it's like, you know, these burka bags, they're 20,000, 30,000. Yeah. They started. I mean, they could be one hundred thousand dollars. Is there any. A handbag in the world that's worth $20,000? No, it's like no but you know what? If you want to be the person what the 6, 10, 100, whatever the, the limited amount that are out there are, yes, you will pay that price and people with money will. So Cuba wants they they go, look, we only can make X amount of these. Um, so we're going to have to increase the price exponentially. Mm. And uh, you know, they decided to take the Hong Kong retail price and and effectively put that across every other market, you know, so they use the Hong Kong price as the reference and uh, they, they decided also to apply it to Trinidad, which is, you know, was kind of the brand that came out after the Cohiba to be the, the top brand. So Cohiba and Trinidad are still the top two um, tiered brands in the uh, Habanos world, but they want to position those two brands as so boutiquey and so high end that if you're smoking a cohiba the same way some people have any other luxury um, you know product that's why you buy it not because it's a great cigar which I think they do make good cigars but you know I
1: just think the prices are just insane they are just insane in- they're 100 insane I would like here's the thing I think I've told you this before like my Cuban buying has uh, slowed down quite a bit in the last uh, two to three years. Like, I started off like, oh, I want to get these Cubans. I want to smoke them. I want to find out what the hype is about. And so I bought a bunch, and then, I, you know, I smoke them, and, oh, well, they need to sit for a couple of years. And now I'm into that sweet spot where they've sat for a couple of years, and I still find myself reaching for non-Cubans more than I find myself reaching for Cubans. So all this yeah. is done, in my opinion, Nick, this this price increase is is that it is it comes at a terrible time. Number one, because inflation is out of control uh, here in the U.S. and some some countries will see a recession. We may see a recession, and for the most part, cigar smokers um, and, and the hobby, cigar smoking as a hobby, has been somewhat insulated from that sort of thing because it is always, you have to have like a steady stream of disposable income in order to, uh, you know, partake of the hobby. I feel like this is going to be different this time because inflation is so rampant. And because um, you know, the price of everything is just out of control. I feel like it's going to slow down, not just for Cuban, Uh, cigars but for all cigars new world cigars included but when you start pricing people out even during best the best of times where you're talking a thousand dollars for a cigar i feel like like what's that going to do to habanos sa long term number one and number two what is that going to do for new world cigars long term because you have a foot in both of these worlds so what like you have a very unique perspective on this what is this going to do to to the industry as a whole long-term.
2: Well, here's where my personal opinion comes into effect. Before I get to that, just so people have a reference point, I want to let them understand that, again, everything is being referenced by the Hong Kong pricing. So to give that as the reference, right now, prior to this big change, uh, let's talk about one of my favorite Cuban cigars, and that's a Cohiba Siglo 6. It's a Cagnonazo Vitola 52 by six, more or less. Um, So basically that cigar used to sell in the United Kingdom for about 57 bucks US value. In Switzerland, about the same. Um, So those are the two major countries that they use as reference. But that same cigar in uh, Hong Kong was around $97. So that means that if they use that reference, that now a Cohiba Siglo 6 in hong kong is going to be around 100 bucks which means it's about a 68% jump so what is it going to do to the market here here's my my position and you know nobody in in uh, habanos would officially um give me a statement on this of course when i asked them and i got some interesting no comment type responses and i think <laughs> a lot of the people there believe as i do what i think is happening but of course, nobody will ever admit to it. Um, well, there's two sides of it. One is they really can't make enough, right? So if they can sell more than they they have, you keep raising the price. But why did it jump so much? Well, there's something that happened uh, not too long ago, not too many years ago, that some people may remember. Uh, there was a sale, Habanos. Um, well, actually. Imperial Tobacco sold off their portion of, well, they sold off Faltitis, which owned 50% of Habanos SA. So um, that was a big, big change. So um, um, what happened? They did finally sell it. And even though officially nobody knows who these buyers were, we were told that it was an Asian investment group that purchased um, the full Altitus, um segment of um, you know uh, no of Imperial Tobacco. Okay, which owns um, owns fifty percent of Habanos. The other half being owned by the Cuban government. So these guys, why? Well, you have to understand that prior and leading up to the, these years, the supply of Cohibas. And not so much Trinidad, but I would see in in Havana that, like there was less and less Cohibas available. And I saw a lot more Asians in Havana and in droves. And so what was happening is the insatiable demand of Cohiba, People were flying there and buying everything they could and buying everywhere else. The same thing I'm sure was happening,, uh, they would fly to um Beirut to the duty free, which was, outside of Havana, the second least expensive place to be able to purchase Cuban cigars at retail. So people, I knew people that would literally be mainly from Russia, but of course from China as well, that their trip consisted of visiting the Beirut. They would never leave the airport. They would go to the Beirut airport where the duty-free shop was. They would buy everything they could and maybe they would stay the night, even maybe not, you know, at
1: a hotel at the airport, and then fly back the next day. That's with an their, expensive cigar, even in the best of times. What'd you do? I took a flight from Russia to Beirut just to get cigars. I didn't even, I didn't leave the I, airport. I, <laughs> I knew
2: people. I know people that make a living, a good living, at doing just that. In the 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 markup was ridiculous and. The, the, the demand for Cuban cigars is in some ways uh, unfathomable. I mean, you don't understand what people are willing to spend today. I am shaking my head every day when I see what people are willing to pay. You know, I have a Singapore distributor and a Hong Kong um, distributor that when they tell me what they're selling Cuban cigars for these days, it's ridiculous. Because, again, supply and demand and these prices that have been in effect. So. What I believe the real reason for this increase overnight by, you know, between 50 to 70% or more uh, is because, look, if you're the buyer and these whoever these people are, they want to satisfy their market first. They basically say, you know, we own 50% of this company. So, you know what? We want all the cigars sent first to Asia and whatever's left over go. And of course they can't do that. It's not a a financially uh, prudent move. It's not a good business decision. They would kill their company. So this was a very interesting, in some ways, ingenious way to do it without upsetting the whole market. Well, as upsetting it as least as possible. So look, they want all the Cohibas that are made in Cuba. So they could, by owning 50%, say, hey, look, we want every that's made. Don't even send it anywhere else. We want it all to Asia. Of course, that's going to kill the brand in so many ways. Um, and all the in-place distributors and Casa de Habanos is and everything else worldwide. So they can't do that. So what do they do? They mark the price at the Hong Kong level and they go, hey, guys, this is the new price. So, of course, there's a big uproar and everybody's upset. And they just had um, this past month in Cuba the big distributor meeting where all the Habanos people went and met with the uh, corporate Habanos and got the lowdown and the information. And basically, I'm sure what they were told is this, look, I know this is upsetting. Well, you know, my customers, maybe they can't afford to pay double the price for that cigar. What's going to happen to me? What am I going to do? How can I sell this? Oh, no problem. Anything you can't sell, guess what? You are allowed to sell it to Asia. Now, that sounds simple enough, but you know what? Before this, the only place outside of their territory that they were allowed to sell cigars is the U.S. See, U.S. was always considered fair game. If you were the distributor of, say, Greece, well, there is no distributor Greece. It's Phoenicia, but I just pick Greece anyway. So let's say you own that country. You have the distribution rights for that country. Your customers, you know, you're barely selling, you know, the amount of cigars you have now. And all of a sudden, you know, you're not going to sell one Cohiba to a local customer. Oh, but you can get the same money by selling it to Asia. Well, well, you know what? So these people now are not feeling completely left high and dry. Some, some still are, of course. So they're not getting stuck with anything. um, And they're making even more money because now they, even though officially they can only sell it to the Asian market outside of the U.S., of course, they're selling it to whoever's got the money, and people are clamoring now. not just the Asians, um, other people there, you know, that have a lot of money now want to get them. So, how do they get them? They're they're going everywhere and trying to find anywhere that has them, they're willing to pay whatever price. So, I think this system was set in place to basically supply all the cohibas and trinidads to the Asian market by but by not totally obsessed, uh, upsetting the existing distributor, a uh, network and retailers that
1: are out there. That's why I believe this was done. Let me, let me, let me, let me bring this in because I feel like this is all kind of interconnected. And I think maybe some of the insiders knew this was coming uh, for, for a few years, because in the last couple of years, um, the secondary market on cigars, Cuban cigars specifically has gone bonkers. So what you would, typically spend on a box of Cuban cigars that you, that you bought in 2019, you let them sit for a couple of years. And now these auction sites like Bond Roberts, well, now people are like, Oh, I'll pay double what you paid for it, or I'll pay triple what you paid for it. And so now on these, these auction sites, your, your regular production, easy to come by, easy to get Cuban cigars are two to three times more expensive uh, with a little bit of age and by a little bit, I mean literally one to two years than it is mm-hmm. buying it from you know uh, your usual suspects I money uh, money Fortuna whoever from from Spain or or uh, Switzerland or Hong Kong or whoever sells it uh, to the US. And then what happens is Habano says they sees that and they're like, well, if they're gonna pay double or triple. For something that's got one to two years of age on it, let's just raise our prices. So everything well, in a says, "Hey, this started going up." I mean, no, no,
2: it's I, all I, happened because of the market in Asia. That's why the demand has gone up. There, there's, there's just no cigars out there, so people are willing to pay. So the non-Asians, if you want to get in on this, you're going to have to pay the same pricing that the Asians are already used to paying.
1: Well, this is so literally Cuban cigars for the last two or three years has just been going up and going up and going up in price. And now it's, I I can't tell you how many folks have just said I'm priced out. I can't, I can't smoke Cuban cigars anymore. So I've got to switch to, to new world cigars and I'm not very happy about it.
2: Yeah. Well, that's the other side of this coin. My comments and my um. Opinion to Habanos and to people that listen to me there. Not that they do, but at least I have some kind of um, outlet. I believe that this is going to do, I mean, I could be wrong, but maybe this is going to work out perfectly in their master plan because Cohiba is going to become that brand that's unobtainable at ridiculous prices and they only make x amount so they're making more profit selling less product which they couldn't raise anyway they had a hard time doing that uh, you know the other big factor was they had no money to pay for the the, the farmers um, and you know that makes a lot of sense I, I made a comment here a few months ago when i was when i found out the price they were willing to pay the farmers I for remember the that. material and I'm going, I don't, I mean, I, that's what the guy told me direct, and I'm going to stick by it, but it didn't make sense. And <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people were telling me there's no way they went from 23 pesos cents to a dollar of a leaf. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I was told. And it was from the main dude. Now it makes sense. So they don't care. They're going to make less product or as much as they can make, and they're going to make a lot more profit. So, but what's going to happen to Habanos and Cuban cigars? um, overall worldwide, it's going to impact it, in my opinion, very, very negatively. Um, and here's why, okay. They're going to, you're going to have your burka bag that nobody really, oh, those idiots are paying $20,000 for a burka bag because they have the money. Great. They do. Right. I don't, I'll smoke something that's just as good, you know, to use the burka analogy, hey, this handbag, cost me $50 and it does the same thing as this $20,000 bag. Exactly. You know, and it could be maybe even better built and more sturdy and the same thing can be said of cigars. These ridiculous prices that are it's just people are paying for the the ability to be able to smoke a label. So they are true label smokers um being able to have that Cohiba cigar with the with the label on it that says Cohiba. Now for somebody that doesn't care as much about the branding of it and just wants a good cigar, well, guess what? You still have a lot of great options out there to be able to smoke. But I have to say that that may change even in the US. Now, hear me out. This is another theory of
1: mine. If Wait, wait. Do I need to put on like a a, a tinfoil hat? Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Listen to this. Listen to this theory. Listen to this theory. Okay.
2: So let me get to the theory by saying this what is this going to do? This lack of Cuban cigars or being priced out of the market for most people, um, they're going to say, hey, you know what? And we're talking non-Americans for for the most part, right? You know, overseas that are used to only smoking just Cubans and 99% of what's being smoked out there. Most countries is Cuban and in some countries now it's less than that, but you know, it's still a small percentage of non-Cubans or these new world cigars. So people now that are not willing to spend the pricing on regular cigars, they are going to explore the same thing that Obama did for, there was a, there was a phenomenon that happened when Obama less, you know, loosened the, um, the, um, the, um, the restrictions on Cuba, everybody worldwide was freaked out saying, oh my God, the embargo is being lifted. We're never going to see another Cuban cigars because the Americans are going to just smoke everything and buy everything. And that fear got people to actually go, you know what? I guess I'm going to have to smoke some of these other non Cuban cigars, or as they refer to them as fake cigars. And then they started smoking these non Cuban cigars. And guess what? Some of them liked it.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, wait. Some of them liked it more
2: than the other one. Exactly. So then people go, Oh, you actually like that? Yeah. So more and more people were trying non-Cuban cigars. So it did wonders. And people asked me years ago when I had my radio show, Oh, this is bad. You know, the, you know, the Cuban, cig-. I go, look, this is the best thing that happened to this industry. And they're like, how can you say that people, you can buy Cuban cigars and this and that. I go, because it's bringing one more um, awareness to the whole industry. And also people are willing to try non-Cuban cigars now in other parts of the world. And you know what? If you talk to a lot of the bigger players that are there, their business went crazy after 2016, 17, you know, in perspective to what they were selling prior. Um, So what is going to happen going forward? Yes, more and more non-Cuban cigar brands are going to be sold overseas in more and more countries. So that's going to dilute the Cuban market. So it won't be such a dominating uh, force. But what? here's my theory for us Americans and US smokers. If you are a manufacturer and you make a brand of cigars and you make X amount for that year in, in your warehouse of whatever, and all of a sudden you've, you've allotted, say, 20% of your allotment to international market and the 80% to the US market. But all of a sudden your international market went from 20% to say 40 or 50%. That means the less cigars that are going to come into the US. And you would say, "Well, no, no, why would they sell it to the, you know, the overseas market? We've been their loyal customers. They should support us first. They should, you know, have the availability to the Americans first and whatever's left give it to the rest of the world." Well, that may be the way they should do it, but what really Happens, and the reality is, and this is what's so crazy about this business. As a manufacturer myself, when I sell cigars to the U.S. market, I don't deal with distributors. I mean, there are some distributors out there that some manufacturers deal with um, as supplemental to their own. But every manufacturer sells literally direct to retailers, either through their own, uh, you know, sales reps or through a broker uh, network of individuals that are selling their cigars to the individual retail shops. So it's a lot of work to get it to every little cigar shop out there. If you don't have the network in place, and of course, that's my major problem you know, in this country because it's tough. And I've mentioned this in the past that unless you have your own sales reps in-house, the only other way is to either do it yourself or hire independent brokers to sell your cigar but they're already selling everybody else's cigar. So get in line. So having said that, why is it so much easier for me and every other brand that doesn't primarily sell in the US? Because you know what? When I deal with one country, I sell to one distributor generally. Some people maybe have two or three, but that's it. So they sell upfront all one shot to one distributor. And then you know what? They wash their hands of it you know, not really. I mean, there's still some marketing that needs to be done. There's still a lot of, but it's done in conjunction with the distributor of that country. So they're taking the brunt of it. So you're just offering it to them. You're getting paid for the most part
1: upfront and you're done. There's there's a component to this that, that we've kind of danced around and I'm, I'm going I'm to bring a I'm going to bring it back, but I'm going to put a caveat caveat on it. And the caveat is this, is the boom that the industry as a whole has been seeing for the past two years during this pandemic is coming to an end. I think we already saw it earlier this year. Uh, There was a large uh, tobacco group that came out and said cigar sales are, are down year over year, like for the first quarter of this year um and so i think you're going to see a big slowdown and a lot of that is due to what we've already talked about and that is the economy um and not just the u.s economy but the worldwide economy so if you now have a a, a european market that is more open to new world cigars oh, even more than worldwide they, worldwide, yeah.
2: worldwide not just european yeah so
1: you you now have a world market that's more open to, to new world cigars And you have, you have production that's kind of been ramped up for the past two years, but they're still not able to meet the demand just here in the U S and you see a, a dwindling, um, public or population with disposable income. (laughs) I mean, doesn't this just seem like the perfect storm at the wrong time, Nick, where, now you're going to have a larger demand for new world cigars. New world cigars are already struggling to keep up demand here in the U S but now demand might be going down and people don't have a lot of money to spend anyway. And it's hitting the whole world at the same time. Like I, what what does this all look like? What is I, as a manufacturer, are you optimistic it's, for the future well, or think, are you pessimistic?
2: I think as a manufacturer and, most manufacturers, this could be their saving grace if they can get into more of these, you know, uh, non-U.S. countries and worldwide market. Um, if there is going to be a slowdown in the U.S., I think there's going to be. I think right now this is a knee-jerk reaction to um, to what's happened and why there's been the first slowdown. Uh, I think you know consumption was way up because pandemic people were sitting home. Uh, didn't have much to do, they were smoking more, um, or what have you. So there was consumption was up. So same thing with alcohol. You know, people were just basically sitting home getting drunk and smoking cigars. So demand was up. And that means once you start getting more into it, it's tough to stop. Let's say you were a casual smoker, you smoked once a week. And all of a sudden you're sitting home, you got a lot of time in your hands, you're in a warmer climate, not in New Jersey, and you can go outside and have a cigar, <laughs> all right. um, you're smoking more. And that's what was happening. So people were smoking more and had more time to relax or just to smoke. So consumption went way up and it was uh, exceeded the, the 90s boom and everything else. And everybody was all uh, optimistic about it. So right now you're in a time where people are starting to freak out because- You know, even though uh, we do a great job trying to lessen the impact of reporting how dire our situation here is in the United States with inflation. And that's a whole other thing I don't want to get into. But (laughs) the main thing, gasoline Mm, that you use every day, when it's doubled in two years, less than two years, when everything you buy today, uh, any consumable product, especially food has increased. All of a sudden you're going, whoa, 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 man, everything is more expensive and I love smoking, but maybe I should just put that on the back and maybe not smoke as much. So I think people are having that knee jerk reaction to saying let's, cause it, it, it's, there seems to be no end in sight, you know, like it keeps going up. I mean, we seem to see a leveling off at the $5 mark Uh, on gas um, temporarily. I think it actually went down like 10 cents, but I think, you know, come again, it's going to start creeping up unless something happens. So people are a little nervous. So maybe that's why you've seen the decline in consumption or use. And I see it in shops. You know, I see in the cigar shops as well, but with the worldwide market now having a little bit of a void with all the Cuban cigars going to you know, their cigars and everybody else's, you know, Cohibas and Trinidad's going to the Asia market, they're willing to bring in some other stuff. So a lot of manufacturers now have an opportunity to sell to these other countries. Um, And then here's the best part. Once somebody smokes something that they've never, I can tell you firsthand, you know, my cigar, I'll be honest, I don't do a lot of marketing. You know, I don't really send my cigars out to a lot of reviewers. I, I don't at all. I don't try to get on everybody's podcast. I I, know. Is it wrong of me? Yeah. For somebody, it seems like counterproductive, but you know what? (laughs) The way I look at it is, you know what? I I love what I do. I'm making a couple bucks at it and I get people to enjoy it. And it's, I'm just doing it ground floor, man. One, one shop at a time. Um,
1: And I love interacting with the people, but you say you don't go on podcast, Nick, but you were I just do my on, own. You were I do just, my own. You do. Well, you're on this one, uh, but you do. Uh, you you were just on one. Uh, the Smoke World let, podcast. Let, let, let me say that. I don't proactively
2: seek out. If somebody calls me and wants me to be on their podcast, I like I've said, I have no problem talking about cigars and I love talking about cigars. So but I'm not out sending i don't do press releases no, i don't send things out yeah, no um but if somebody called me i don't care who it is you know you got two people to listen to your podcast you want me on and you want to talk cigars it's a conversation i well, think i think, care. Two, I think, think
1: saying i have two people that listen to my yeah, maybe, maybe you have three maybe three maybe right. i don't know the Gra- point of it is, is i don't listening. promote I, I, look, look what, what is the future What's the future of, of cigars look like with everything we've just talked about with the with the with the with the prices uh, of of food and the prices of gas and everything? What does the future of the cigar industry look like? Is it bright, or is it especially for? Because look, there are new cigar manufacturers coming in every day. There are a ton of small boutique manufacturers that just are popping up. Is this going to continue? Uh, it, it, are they going to go away? What 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 does this look like for people?
2: Well, as long as there's demand, there will be brands that pop out um, all the time. Um, but eventually, you know, the ones that stay, stick it out are the ones that are truly in it, not just for the financial reasons or because they love um, the whole industry and, and everything there is about cigars. Um, what I think is going to happen is after this knee-jerk reaction to the economy, uh, where people maybe are just trying to take a uh, stock of where their dollars are going. Hey, I got this much for food. I got this much for transportation, IE gas and what have you. And I have this much for rent. And th- what, how much disposable income do I have left? Cigars are a big part of people's uh, lives, people that smoke. Uh, I don't think you're going to get a lot of new smokers coming in during this time. Um, because, It's not a great time to start a new hobby because there's not going to be as much, you know, disposable discretionary income out there. But for people that do smoke, as you know, because you're listening to this podcast, you're a smoker. um, You want to smoke your cigars and you're not going to give them up. Maybe you'll have to smoke less. Uh, Hopefully you won't smoke down. I tell people, look, life's too short to smoke cheap cigars. When I say cheap, bad cigars, it could be inexpensive, but. Don't smoke a cigar that's bad just because the price is low. Um, So smoke good cigars at any price and you can find good cigars at any price. So keep smoking, keep smoking good cigars um, because it does so much, I believe, for the mind, for the, you know, nobody's going to say cigar smoking is a healthy habit, but I believe it's a healthy part of somebody's life when you have a something to enjoy, look forward to enjoying, to de-stress, to release, you know, all the everyday uh, stress that goes on about what's going on today in this economy and everything else. So I think cigars are important. I think socially, um, the aspect of cigars and going to a cigar lounge and meeting people and sharing, um, it's very therapeutic. I I love uh, what cigars, you know, what what they represent and what they do to people. So it's a social sport. Absolutely. And I think in the long term, cigars will be fine. Um, once whatever happens and there's some kind of basis and it doesn't seem like it's just continually going down or it levels off. Um, you know, the difference too, you know, which I have to point out is that even though the economy and everything is increasing, right now, the one factor that is not um, decreasing is you know, the uh, employment. I mean, right now we have the highest levels of employment and it seems to be that there people are always looking for, for people to work and they can't find it. I'm like, man, where are all these people now sitting home? They, you know, with prices being what what's going on, why are they not getting these jobs? But the, the only thing is people are working and they are making money. They're paying more for everything, but they still have money. So I don't think um, in the long term I think in the short term you might see a little bit of a dip but I think that'll easily be corrected or compensated by any sales that manufacturers can make overseas in the in the short term but in the long term I think people go back to smoking and once they figure out what their finances are and I think it'll be fine so
1: yeah I, I think you're right I think we'll see it'll come to an equilibrium uh people will figure out how much just how much or how little uh, discretionary income they have Um and we'll go from you know it'll it'll kind of just balance out, and I think some manufacturers will survive. I think the good ones will survive because I think if a, if a cigar comes to market, if it if a cigar today is able to come to market, there's an audience for it. Whether you're the audience for that particular cigar or not, somewhere out there there's an audience for it. Does that make sense? Well, no. You don't think so? Me. No. Why I think- not? I think
2: there are a lot of brands that have come and gone and they came to market just because that person behind it, in some cases, it was a shrine to them. They wanted to have their own. A lot of people want to have their own cigars for the sake of having their own cigars.
1: And they go, oh, I can make money at doing this. Yeah. Let's but, not talk about that, <laughs> right? But that's, there's, a, there's a lot of egos in this business. Now, I'm not the name names or point fingers, but there are a lot of egos in this business. Sure. That I want, think
2: every industry has their share, but I think for sure a lot of people get into this business with the wrong idea, you know, or the wrong, uh, they, they don't really think it out. You know, they invest, you know, the biggest, the, the, one of the best jokes I heard is how do you make a million dollars in this business, in the cigar business, start with 2 million. And there's something <laughs> to that because it, it's, it's very cost prohibitive to get in. It's a lot of work. I mean, you can get a niche, you can, but you never know. Um, some hit, some have made, uh, made it to the top, but a lot of people continue to do it because they enjoy it. And like I said, in my case, as long as I can put food on the table and make good cigars that people are enjoying and people give me feedback saying, Hey, I love the cigar. I'll keep making them. And I think I, you know, I can speak for a lot of manufacturers that feel exactly the same way in all different, uh, levels or on their journey of where they're at in the cigar world. So I think it's a wonderful business uh, to be in for anybody. Um,
1: Just find your niche if you can do it. There you go. It is a good time to do it since Cuban cigars are basically uh, pricing people out of them. Nick Cirrus, thank you so much for joining me uh, and and talking about modern Cuban cigars and the impact uh, of the U.S. embargo. We didn't really get to talk about the impact of communism, but I think if you have listened to this sub-series um, you kind of get the impact of communism already. We've talked about it, uh, almost, uh, ad hoc on this program, uh, for this series. Um, but yeah, so Nick will be coming back again at the first of the month, next month. And we'll be talking about, uh, the farms, the Cuban farms and why Cuban cigars are so much different than new world cigars. Or is there a difference? Maybe there is, maybe there isn't Nick. Is there a difference? Don't answer that. Cause that's, that's a teaser. In the book, okay. we call that a t-shirt. Sure. Right. <laughs> Nick Sears, LH Cigars. Uh, if you want to uh, have Nick on your program or you want to find out more about LH Cigars, um, check out the uh, show notes, lhcigars.com. Go there, uh, and we'll have uh, his contact info there so you can get a hold of Nick, and he can answer all of your questions. Um, and we'll see you in a month, Nick. Um, all right. And I uh, invite
2: anyone to contact me because— I'm not just uh, blowing smoke, as they say. I really do enjoy interacting with uh, people that enjoy the same things I do, which is smoking cigars. So please feel free to contact me through my website, send me information, comments, anything you want, and I will answer everyone.
1: There you go. And we've had a lot of feedback on this Cuban sub series uh, so far this year. It's all been positive feedback. I thank you all so much for commenting. Uh, you can go to simplystogies.com comment there you can leave a review on apple podcast google podcast uh and uh uh, tell us what you think i appreciate all of you listening uh until next time friends where we talk about uh the farms the soil and why cuban cigars are so much different than new
0: world cigars i'm james that's nick stay smoky friends thank you for listening to simply stogies visit simplystogies.com for the latest articles and reviews Subscribe to our YouTube channel for the latest in video content and please rate and review Simply Stogies on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. You can follow James on his cigar journey on Instagram at Simply Stogies Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at the Twitter handle at Simply Stogies. If you have a question or suggestion for James or would like to be on the show, please send an email to info at simplystogies.com.